Well, greetings. It's good to be back with you. I want to give a little bit of a recap as to where we've been and a little look at where we're going in the future. Uh, we've looked at the glorious church of Jesus Christ, the nature of the church, the attributes of the church, and the preeminence of the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we've looked at the purpose of the church, the, the worship and exaltation of the Lord. Uh, believers gather together, we assemble and worship and exalt Christ. He has first place in the church. Uh, also, the church exists to build up and serve the family of God. Uh, every member has a ministry. Every member has a, a responsibility, a role, uh, a way to, to be a blessing to uh, the body of Christ. And third, to proclaim the gospel to ourselves and to the lost. Uh, that is the outward aspect of the mission of the church. And I want us to look at, uh, first of all, some of the characteristics of the Great Commission, uh, some of the characteristics of this final purpose of the church. Uh, and I think it's important for us to, to see and know and uh, witness some of these characteristics of the Great Commission. Uh, as we've already learned, we are in the age of the Great Commission. Uh, I want to use the Gospel of Matthew as sort of a grid for us to, to think about and analyze, just big picture, uh, what some of the uh, main characteristics of this Great Commission going forward are. Uh, I'm going to spend the majority of our time on the final one, uh, but you can see on the screen uh, or in an outline um, some of these uh, characteristics. So the first one is the Great Commission results in the blessing for all people. One of the things we notice about uh, Matthew's gospel is that the, the gospel is freely offered uh, to all people. It's a, it's a blessing of good news, of great joy uh, for all the people. Uh, we actually see this uh, in the very first verse of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know, you might want to ask the question, why does Matthew start off with mentioning that Jesus is the son of Abraham? Well, remember in our, in our first message, we covered some of this. Uh, Abraham was a, a moon-worshipping pagan just like everyone else was when God called him out of Ur and made a covenant with him. God made a covenant with Abraham and told him that uh, through his line, through Abraham's line, the entire world would be blessed. The big question was how? How would all the families of the world be blessed? Uh, how has the whole wide world been blessed? Well, God affirmed that same promise to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 with the Davidic covenant. So Jesus is the son of David Jesus is the son of Abraham. Again, Matthew 1, verse 1. Matthew's making the point, the very important point, that these covenants and promises find their fulfillment in Jesus, the king of, of Israel, who through his people will extend this blessing to the nations. The reason I bring all this up is because the entire story of Jesus the essence of Christianity, the essence of the Christian gospel is that there is a blessing. There's a blessing for every human being on the planet. There's a blessing uh, for all families. There's a blessing for all nations, and it's all wrapped up 
in Christ. So there's a blessing to be enjoyed, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ, and it was promised thousands of years prior to Abraham and to David. Jesus is how the world is going to be blessed. Uh, And that blessing will come now through the church. People who understand the blessing will go out into the world and proclaim this blessing to all people. The gospel, again, is a blessing for all people. There's another story in Matthew's gospel, and uh, I'm not going to read the whole story, but in Matthew chapter 22, you can go and research this on your own, there's this invitation that goes out uh, to all people. In fact, Matthew 22, Jesus describes the kingdom like this huge meal. It's a massive party that everyone is invited to. And it's, again, it's a blessing for all people. It's a celebration for everyone. Some people accept the invitation. Some people don't accept the invitation. They reject it. But the invitation goes to everyone. Well, you get to the very end of Matthew... Come full circle. The end of Matthew, Matthew 28, Jesus gives the Great Commission. He says it is for all people. It's for all nations. The scope of Christ's mission is global. Every single nation. It's it's all-encompassing. It's comprehensive. All nations, Jews and Gentiles. So this is how the nations are going to be blessed through the Abrahamic covenant, through the Davidic covenant. The Great Commission is news of great blessing for all people. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, said it well. He said, I cannot understand how it is that you know the Savior, or think you do, can imagine it to be right to hide away and cover up the glory of Christ. Oh, proclaim it. Shout it to all the world over that he has healed us, forgiven us, and saved us. We can understand how the world is silent about things, but we cannot understand how the church of redeemed sinners can be silent about the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. It is a blessing for all people. That's the first characteristic I want you to notice. The second one is that the Great Commission involves fishing for souls. Again, Matthew chapter 4, verse 19 says of Jesus, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. When Jesus calls his disciples, he immediately tells them that their activity will revolve around catching people, fishing for people. Uh, This is called evangelism. We are to be catchers of people, winners of souls. Part of being a disciple of Jesus, part of being a Christian is is that we share the good news of Jesus. We, We bear witness to the blessing. Uh, As a Christian, I am blessed in every way for having entered into a covenant with Christ. Uh, No part of me regrets it. Uh, It is a blessing in every way. We bear witness to that. We share the blessing that is ours and really theirs in Jesus Christ. So if you are a Christian, you are thinking in terms of souls, the souls of men and women, and you're looking for and praying for an opportunity to share the gospel. Paul says, I think it's in Colossians chapter 4, pray for us that a door would be opened for the word. We're praying for opportunities to get the word out, to share the gospel, share the blessing. Now, this doesn't mean we have a five-point lecture we give to each person when we meet them. 
Uh, it doesn't mean we, we, you know, pray over people every time we meet them, but it, it does mean we're thinking of ways to bless them, thinking of ways to love them, thinking of ways to share the blessing, share the gospel with them. And it might mean, by the way, you do ask them, hey, uh, can I pray for you? By the way, very few people have I met who, who will refuse that request. Many people, most people that I meet at least, are willing to at least have you pray for them. Uh, maybe you give them a book or a tract. Uh, maybe your church has a, a bunch of books available, literature available to hand out, to give out to people. Good books. There's a lot of bad books. Find some good books to be able to give out to people. Uh, think through opportunities to, to share the gospel. Think of ways to love people. Think of ways to serve people. Think of ways to befriend people. Uh, the Christmas story is a story of the incarnation. Jesus comes into our world and uh, brings the good news. So we need to do the same with our neighbors. Think of ways to, to have them over. Think of ways to love them, get into their lives. Fish for souls. We are fishing for people. We care about people. Uh, a few years ago, I was flying back from India, and uh, I flew through Abu Dhabi in uh, UAE, and the time of, of day I was flying, I was able to look out my window, and I could see as we were, as we were uh, coming into the city, uh, just houses after house after house in the middle of the desert, and just rolling hills and sand dunes, and, and you could see mosque, you know, after mosque, after mosque, and my heart broke. So many people, so many people. And again, flying, flying through, uh, you know, from Trivandrum up to Kochi, uh, you know, solid people. Uh, Kochi to, to, to Delhi, so many people, so many people, billions of people. I think fifth of the world's population lives in India. Billions and billions of souls. Jesus cares about all of them. Jesus cares about souls. He tells his disciples, you're to be fishing for souls. So this is, this is a characteristic of the Great Commission. We care about people. We love people. We fish for people. This is what Jesus commands. This is what Jesus models. This is what Jesus calls his disciples to do. So let's remember that we've been sent on a rescue mission to get the good news out, to proclaim the good news to people. Uh, we need to break out of our isolation, break out of our comfort zones, and remember that the Lord has called us to, be, uh, to bear witness and be fishers of men. Third, the Great Commission is described as sowing seeds. You see this in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus gives uh, really the parable that interprets the rest of the parables in Matthew 13, where he says the kingdom of God comes in the form of a message or a word. It's like sowing seeds. He says in, in uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, when the word of God goes out, there are four responses, he tells in that parable, four different uh, types of soil, four different responses to the word of God. But notice, the seed is the word, it's the message. And the disciples are given a very specific message. Proclaim as you go... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They are, they are charged with a particular message. We mentioned this before in a previous message. We've been given a specific message. It's not politics. It's not entertainment. It's not amusements and hilarity and laughter and comedy. Uh, it's not self-help. It's not self-improvement. Uh, tips on successful living. 
It's not social justice or good deeds. It's the message about Jesus Christ and the blessing that he brings. And the message that you need to repent and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Come under his reign and his rule now. Do it before it's too late. Cast yourself upon Christ. He forgives sins and gives eternal life and abundant life. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Receive the blessing. This is our message. And it's a reminder for us. We have a mission. We have a message. We've been given a focus. And it's a gospel focus. We've been given marching orders, direction, and instructions from the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sent on mission to share the gospel. We're we're not at liberty, church. We are not at liberty to set our own agenda, go our own way, do our own thing. We are people who have been charged to get the message out there. We are people on mission. Christians are people with a message. We proclaim a message. We're gospel-driven people, uh, missions-driven people. So this era that we live in, this mystery of the kingdom between the first and second coming of Christ is this time period of casting the seed, getting the word of God out. Uh, That means missions, it means evangelism, it means discipleship training, it means Sunday morning sermons and preaching and adult Sunday school and children's Sunday school and Bible studies. This is the era of the word. The word of God is is to be a, a characteristic Of the Great Commission. Hopefully that's obvious. Number four, the Great Commission will be met with hostility. Now, this is a really, really important one. In fact, it's it's something I think about quite often. You can see this in Matthew 10, and I, I know I'm summarizing these passages and moving quickly, but when Jesus sends out the first uh short term mission trip in Matthew chapter 10. He tells them, this is really interesting, he tells them to expect persecution from their family, expect persecution from religious people, expect persecution from the state, and expect persecution really from all of society. You can see that in verse 16 of chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel. They will be like sheep in the midst of wolves, Jesus says. That's his point. The work of spreading the good news will be met with opposition. Just in your own time, go and read Matthew chapter 10 and be reminded that one of the main characteristics is opposition and hostility. Persecution is guaranteed, Jesus says. Hostility is promised. In fact, I referenced Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, it's interesting, uh, Jesus says that the news of the kingdom will actually be met with satanic opposition. You know, we might ask the question, uh, when we present the gospel, why don't people respond positively? Uh, Why don't they receive the gospel? Well, we have the answer in Matthew 13. The answer is the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. There is actually a spiritual war that takes place every time the word of God is proclaimed, every time the testimony is shared, Every time the kingdom of God is talked about, there is a spiritual battle, a spiritual warfare. Satan has the ability to circumvent the word being received. He has the ability to blind the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel in Christ. 
Jesus is preparing his disciples for the reality that the mission is going to be hard. It's going to be discouraging. It's going to be painful. If you read biographies of of missionaries or great men and women who have uh, served the Lord in difficult places, you see immediately that the difficulty, the hardship, the struggle, the persecution that that happens. Uh, One of the times I was in India, actually, I was with a brother from Indiana, and he told me about his church in Indiana, how they went through a very difficult time, and there was lots of infighting in his church and struggle and dissension. And in the midst of that, he, he traveled to India where he was helping some workers and meeting with believers. And uh, he, he said he was just blown away by the bigger picture of what the Lord was doing in India. And then he said it dawned on him. Was it possible that the reason for all the infighting and struggle and difficulty was because of their support for the work in India. And then he told me, he says, I realized at that moment, he was an elder in his church, he said, I realized this might be the most important thing we do as a church, is support the work going on in India. And that realization, he said, really transformed their church. They realized we've got all these different issues going on, but there's a battle going on. We've got to rise above this by the Lord's strength and power, clothe ourselves with the armor of God and support these workers, support the word of God going out. And I love that because that's a, uh, it's a real-life illustration of the fact that there is persecution, there is hostility. We have to recognize there is a, a battle. If you want to plant churches in Bangalore, there's going to be a battle. There's going to be opposition against that. If you want to share the gospel with your coworkers or with your neighbors, there's going to be opposition against that. So it's a good reminder for us of what Jesus has said. Satanic forces are against the spreading of the gospel. To say this a different way, the Great Commission will not advance without suffering and sacrifice. Uh, The efforts to to multiply more and more churches, uh, the efforts to raise up and train new leaders, men and women, the efforts to reach out to neighbors or the local university, All of this will be met with opposition. Just expect it. Know it. It's one of the characteristics of the Great Commission. There is no advancement without sacrifice and suffering. And if you read the book of Acts, you see this. You immediately see the gospel of Jesus met with opposition. 2,000 years have passed and uh, nothing has changed in that regard. The Great Commission involves sacrifice and suffering. It means we have to get out of our comfort zones. It means we have to pray. And uh, reproduction is, is exciting, but it's also painful and difficult. So expect pain. All right, number five. I want to spend the rest of our time on number five. The Great Commission involves education. I want you to look at Matthew 28. We're going to look at this in more detail in the next uh, session. But I want to highlight the importance of teaching in the Great Commission. Uh, if, I want you to see the characteristic of Uh, education as part and parcel, as essential to what the Great Commission is. So in Matthew 28, at the very end, you read in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the big command, make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So the response 
to the Great Commission is baptism and instruction. That's the result of the Great Commission, which we'll look at in just a minute or in the next session. We get baptized, and then we get taught to obey Jesus and his word. Those who become disciples get baptized, and they get taught to obey. That's, in a sense, it's happening right now. Uh, there's teaching going on, there's listening, and then there's obedience to Jesus. What does Jesus want us to do? We do that. I mean, <laughs> this happens every time you gather and hear the word of God. In a sense, what we're doing is we're getting together, we're hearing the word of God taught, and we're all saying, okay, yeah, we'll do that now. Uh, all that I've commanded you, Jesus says, he does not foresee a, a time when any part of his teaching will become needless or outdated or irrelevant, superseded or untrue. Everything he has commanded must be passed on to the very end of the age. So these are our orders, right? So if the Great Commission includes biblical education, how will this happen? How do we do this? I want to propose some practical ideas for you. Uh, and maybe these will be helpful. Maybe they won't. I, I, maybe they won't be. I won't be offended. Uh, so just take, take all of this material, and if there's some things that emerge that are helpful, then, then praise the Lord, uh, use this. But I want you to see the big picture is that you have been tasked with the responsibility, and I'm talking to every single uh, believer, you've been tasked with this great commission. So how are you going to do it? How are you going to participate in this? If education is commanded by our Lord, we need to have some kind of a plan. So I want to talk about how this aspect of the Great Commission might play out in a church on a Sunday morning or whenever it is you meet uh, with adult education and with uh, children's education. So I have four parts to this, and the first one is this. You need to have the foundational strategy that the Word of God is essential. Now, this may be obvious to you. In fact, I believe you already have this as your uh, foundational strategy. But let me just reiterate it. Many churches live on sermonettes, uh, little itty-bitty, short, pathetic sermons. G. Campbell Morgan was an English uh, preacher who said, sermonettes breed Christianettes. Many churches live off these scattered sermonettes with little content, uh, little continuity, little direction, little challenge, little application, uh, little direction. Many churches complain about the content of the sermons on Sunday morning. They, they say the content is very poor. Uh, it's not relevant for 21st century people. It's got some sweet thoughts. It has some sweet ideas, some cute stories. Uh, but there's no authority. There's no power in the Holy Spirit. The prophet Amos said, the people were suffering from a famine of the word of God. I think that's happening all over the world today. The answer to this is a return to teaching the, the whole Bible, not just using the Bible for little mini sermonettes. Uh, we call this systematic expository preaching. Now, this, is just not, this, this isn't just my opinion. If you listen to the great reformers, they'll tell you the church really needs a return to uh, the teaching of the Bible. 
expository teaching of the scriptures. And I would say this is true in, in every area of the church. It's true in Sunday school. It's true with the youth. It's true with the college-age students. Uh, every group needs the word of God exposed. Uh, let me give you some examples of this just in, in church history. You look at the Great Reformation. Calvin in Geneva, the last 15 years of his life, wanted to teach consecutively uh, systematically going through from Genesis to Revelation. Many of his commentaries are basically just his sermons. Luther uh, also, Martin Luther also taught the Bible systematically. He was a great teacher of the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, uh, teaching through the Psalms. Much of his uh, material today is from his Bible lectures. The English Puritans have a great history of this, uh, of expositional, systematic preaching. And they really elevated the sermon to uh, great honor in their architecture. In fact, they, they brought the pulpit and they brought it to the center of, you know, the building instead of over there on the side. And they even oftentimes had an open Bible where you come in and really what's symbolically being spoken is everything we're saying here is out of the word of God. Uh, they really brought a great revival to uh, to biblical preaching, in contrast to the state church and the Roman Catholic church, which gave very little attention to the preaching of the scriptures. Listen to the statement by George Mueller. He said, that which I have found most beneficial in my experience for the last 51 years in the public ministry of the word is expounding the scriptures, and especially the going now and then through a whole gospel or epistle. So expository preaching is preaching that exposes the word of God. Systematic exposition goes through uh, books of the Bible, preaching verse by verse. Uh, Steve Lawson once said, if, if you are preaching the Bible, you are more relevant than tomorrow's newspaper. It's exactly what people need. Uh, let me just ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe the scriptures are what people need? A healthy congregation is a congregation with a vibrant, expository teaching ministry from the word of God. That's what grows the church, which we'll talk about later on. Steve Lawson said this, Throughout church history, preachers who have left a lasting impact on the church have known that, in the words of Michael Horton, the regular proclamation of Christ through the close exposition of Scripture, is more relevant in creating a worshiping and serving community than political causes, moral crusades, and entertaining services. Uh, I grew up in a church in uh, southwest Minnesota, and uh, it was a fine church. They taught uh, the, the, the gospel. I heard the gospel there. But I'd never heard any verse-by-verse -verse teaching through the scriptures until I came to college. I came to college in Colorado, uh, where I'm at now. And I came to this church, Littleton Bible Chapel, and the preacher, Alexander Strauch, was uh, teaching through the scriptures. And, and it was like my mind was blown. I'd never heard anything like this. Uh, teaching verse-by-verse -verse through the scriptures, and it was electrifying. It was awesome. It was relevant. It had application, and it was God's word. I loved it. I love it still. And it made me want to study the Bible. 
gave me confidence in the scriptures. Uh, and it gave me a vision for the, the significance of expository preaching. Uh, when I was at the end of college, there was a church that was uh, asking if I would come and, and uh, fill in preaching while they were looking for a pastor. It was a little Baptist church. And uh, I said, you know, at first I said, no, thanks. But I, I eventually said, okay, I'll come and I'll teach, but I don't really know what I'm doing. And so I called Alex uh, Strauch here at the church and, and said, what should I do? He says, preach through Ephesians. I'll help you. Here's some commentaries. And uh, so as a 21-year-old college student in this church, I just started, started preaching. I eventually came on as their uh, pastor uh, but I knew what I wanted to do was to preach verse by verse through the Bible. I don't want to jump here, jump there. I wanted to preach. And that was so helpful for me. It was, it was electrifying for me, for the study of the Word of God. And I, I believe it's what uh, people crave and people want. All right, number two, a strategy for the Sunday morning preaching. Uh, this is a, really a charge to the elders, but the rest of you can listen in, and I hope appreciate this. The elders are the ones who are responsible to articulate a strategy uh, for the Sunday morning preaching. Uh, that strategy, I think, will trickle down into all of the other programs, but let me give you a practical example of what I'm talking about. I think it's helpful to clearly state to the church uh, your philosophy of feeding the flock. And maybe you even write it out, have some kind of a statement. Uh, for the family Bible hour, or for the Sunday morning preaching, uh, we are committed to, and then, you know, have the things that you are committed to. Uh, your philosophy of preaching ministry. Let me suggest or propose some. Number one, we are committed to regular, systematic, expository Bible teaching. Now, this doesn't mean you never do a series, a topical series, uh, but your normal steady diet is books of the Bible. You're moving through books of the Bible. For example, if you taught the book of Romans, you would cover many major doctrines as well as lifestyle application, lifestyle, Christian lifestyle issues. The people will get a well-balanced diet. Uh, you would cover areas and doctrines you might not naturally want to cover. Uh, but that's the genius of it. That's the beauty of it is that God sets the menu and we just deliver it. And by the way, I think this is what grows the church. A strong pulpit ministry expounding the word of God is what grows the church. It's the word proclaimed in power that really is a key mark in strong, healthy, growing churches. By the way, it also inspires younger people to be students of the Word, to dive into the Word, to get into the Word, to become Bible scholars, Bible students themselves. Uh, my older brother tells a story when he was uh, a teenager. He went to a camp and he heard the speaker give this amazing sermon on that statement, uh, and Enoch walked with God. And this, uh, this preacher was bringing out all kinds of application and just exposing this verse, and it was beautiful. My brother had never heard anything like this. And he was amazed by it. And he uh, walked up to the speaker afterwards just to talk to him. And that speaker said to him, you can do it too. You can study the scriptures too. You can preach the word of God too. And it lit a fire in my brother to become a student of the scripture. 
cast that kind of a vision, have that kind of a, a purpose statement. We want to have this kind of preaching on Sunday morning. Second of all, we also are committed to clear, challenging, well-prepared, easy-to-understand messages. Uh, you want to have a commitment that those who are preaching are going to give serious time and effort to preparing a message. Uh, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be informative. Uh, it's going to show that they have studied, that they have labored to illustrate and apply this. It's easy to follow. It's applicable. Uh, in other words, there's some credibility with the speaker. You know, one way to shorten a sermon is to just make it more interesting. Uh, if people are bored, it's not their problem, it's the speaker's problem. Uh, if people are bored, it's the speaker's fault, not the people's fault. Here's an idea, by the way, uh, just a suggestion, something we've tried here is uh, periodically we'll do a preaching cohort or a preaching small group. And I'll invite six or seven or eight guys, and uh, I'll do one or two weeks of just teaching on, on this, on expositional teaching, preaching, what is it, how do we do it, I'll maybe give them some books to read, and then I'll divide up a, a passage, let's say the first half of Ephesians. I'll break it into sections, and uh, I'll give them each, you know, a passage to study and prepare, and I'll tell them, you've got 15 minutes and two of you, next week, you're going to come, you're going to preach it to this group of seven people, and we're going to give you feedback, and we're going to talk about it. Uh, what was good? Uh, what could have been better? What worked? What didn't? And just to develop a culture that values and appreciates excellent preaching, excellent Sunday morning preaching, and not just Sunday morning, but whenever it is. Uh, by the way, women could do the same thing. Women who are teaching women. We've done this as well. All right, number three, relevant, inspiring application of the word for modern people. We want, we tell our, our, our students, our people, we want uh, applicational exposition. You know, people can stay at home and, and read a commentary, you know, on the Bible. We want preaching that moves people. It's not just a bunch of facts and information. You're calling people. You know, there's a second gear where you're saying, you need to do this. Join me in doing this. Let's go. Let's do this. You're, you're using the scriptures and, and calling people and leading people. Uh, it's the next level. We want that. Um, all right, number four, we're also committed to appropriate teachers for the situation. Uh, not all teachers are Sunday morning teachers, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, you know, even our elders, it's a requirement. Every elder has to be able to teach. They have to be able to, to articulate sound doctrine, explain what the gospel is. But, but many of our elders are not gifted in teaching. In fact, they, would, they don't want to get up on Sunday morning and preach. We also have men who are not elders well, they're gifted, we'll have them preach sometimes. We want excellent preachers, especially on Sunday morning when we might bring visitors. Um, not all elders are going to labor in preaching and teaching. And this is what I believe Paul means in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, when he tells us that some elders are laboring in leading and in teaching. 
In other words, they're gifted teachers of the word of God. They love to study and to preach and to teach. And here's, the, here's why this matters. Everyone in your church should be confident that when they bring a visitor on Sunday morning, they're going to hear a good sermon. It's going to be an excellent sermon out of the scriptures. You want to build that kind of confidence. You don't want to, you know, invite your neighbor to come and, and, and join you on Sunday morning and think, oh, no, I, I hope this person's not preaching. Uh, so elders need to protect that. Uh, this is not, Sunday morning is not a good time to, to, you know, give brothers practice time. Do that on Sunday night. Do it during the week, some other time. But Sunday morning should be reserved for the very best. And by the way, that raises the bar for everyone. You want a culture of excellence where people want to do, you know, excel and do excellent and do better, not have it be sloppy. By the way, this is what grows the church, and this is God's plan. It's spirit giftedness. We see this in Ephesians 4. Certain gifts equip and build the church, and that is what the preaching ministry does. The fifth thing I'll say is we are committed to, if you have a statement, we're committed to these things. I would also suggest gospel proclamation is the fifth thing. On Sunday morning, your people should be confident that if they bring a visitor who's an unbeliever, that they're going to hear the gospel. And so no matter what passage of scripture you may be in, you end that sermon with a call to receive Christ, a call to repent and trust Christ. You tell them, there, there is, Christ has done for you which you could never do for yourself. Uh, he has offered himself as a sacrifice for your sins. You can be saved, given eternal life if you come to Christ. Would you come to Christ? Why won't you come to Christ? Give your life to Christ. There ought to be a gospel call in every sermon. All right. Third thing. The third Thing is a strategy for the education of adults and children. A strategy for the education of adults and children. Uh, I think you need to think through how to uh, teach the whole counsel of God. Develop a vision for teaching the whole counsel. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, and he expected them to follow this. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, I was actually on your church website. And by the way, I'm very impressed with everything I've heard about your church. It's very exciting to me. I'm praying for you. Uh, But I saw that one of the things you're doing is teaching through the whole counsel of God. Excellent. That's excellent. When Paul writes uh, 1 Thessalonians, those believers are only about a month old, and yet Paul is talking to them about prophecy. You know, we think sometimes prophecy is only for those who are, you know, older in the faith, more mature. Okay, now you can, let's talk about prophecy. These people are a month old in the faith. Paul's teaching them the whole counsel of God. So we need to discuss the content of, of our teaching. Uh, what is our strategy? What are we doing? Uh, is it just scattered sermons? Oh, you want to preach on that? Preach on that. I want to preach on this. You preach on that. Or is there some kind of of long-term vision of of what we're teaching, of the education? I'd suggest a a systematic theology. Uh, We just did this in the last, this last fall, we used a book called The Fundamentals of the Faith. And it's a basic 
doctrine, basic systematic theology for, for really any Christian, mature or young, to just learn some basic doctrines, a whole range of different uh, doctrines. Many Christians have no idea how the Bible fits together. Uh, they have no idea the various doctrines that are taught in the Scripture, uh, soteriology, eschatology, ecclesiology, which really this camp is about. I would also say keep track of everything you've taught. It's amazing how, uh, uh, you know, you might realize, oh, we've never taught on the attributes of God, or we've never taught on this doctrine. Also, for Sunday morning in particular, keep a steady diet of the Scripture. Don't just be New Testament, New Testament, New Testament. Have some Old Testament. This is all God's Word. But the elders are responsible for whatever is taught in the church. And so have a grasp of cell groups, you know, home groups, uh, whatever, whatever is being taught in the church, the elders should know about and have approved. So a part of improving your teaching ministry is spending time evaluating, praying about the feeding ministry of the church. It's amazing to me how important this is in the scriptures. You see it over and over again. Elders need to know sound doctrine and be able to refute those who contradict it. They need to be able to teach. There is a word-centeredness all throughout the Scripture. One of the reasons for that is we so easily forget. Uh, we need to be brought back to the Word. We need to be taught. Again, this is the age of the Word. So evaluate your plan of your teaching ministry, your, your uh, adult ministry, your Sunday school. Uh, assess and approve. Offer training to teachers. Set a tone for the way Scripture is to be taught. All right, also develop a vision for Sunday school curriculum and teachers. Uh, the, the education of youth is so significant. It's so important. Uh, elders should know what is being taught to the children. Um, teachers need to be trained. Uh, one suggestion is maybe appointing someone or even hiring someone, if you can, as a Christian uh, educator, education director. Uh, of youth and children. This doesn't need to be an elder, although it could be, uh, but this is an exciting job. We're actually thinking through this ourselves with, with all education in, in youth, uh, college and career, uh, in uh, you know, Sunday morning, adults, adult uh, teaching, uh, having someone bring some order and leadership to this. Um, also, I'd mention develop a vision for adult education. Uh, classes for new believers, uh, older, mature believers, young married couples, uh, young married couples with children, marriage seminars, seniors. Um, these classes can be taught in the church. They can be taught in home. Uh, your home is a great, could be a great school. Use your home for teaching. Also develop a vision for developing teachers and effective teachers. Develop an eye for people. Give them books to read. Meet with them. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen out of thin air. He is envisioning some kind of a process. You are to do this. And I'm speaking to the elders here. Elders, you are to do this. Have some kind of plan of giving them materials, giving them training. Uh, teaching them. 
This takes time and effort. And then provide them opportunities. Again, Sunday morning uh, might not be the best opportunity. Maybe you, maybe you create an opportunity for a Sunday evening or a Monday evening uh, for them to teach. Also, we could say the same for women, for women to teach women, Bible studies, etc. cetera. Uh, provide materials and conference opportunities. Uh, I would say locate good books, identify good books, uh, budget this in the church if you can, and, and give them uh, to your people, to your teachers. Uh, turn them on to good preachers. Turn them on to good sermons. Uh, maybe there's conferences they can attend, camps they can attend. Uh, we can learn a lot by listening to good theology, listening to good teaching. So find resources. All right, the last major point I want to mention, number four, is a strategy for evaluation and change. Develop a spirit of evaluation. Now, again, I, I've, I've interacted with you a little bit with Brother George, uh, and I've been on your website, and I am so impressed with even what, what uh, was sent to me on the last number of camps you have done. There's a spirit of evaluation. Many churches could learn from what you're doing. It's excellent what you're doing. That kind of ethos is so needed today of evaluating every aspect of the ministry. Um, any holiday, any special event, what worked, what didn't work. Uh, giving feedback to the music ministry, giving feedback to uh, the teaching ministry, but having a spirit of evaluation and improvement and diligence uh, and zeal. As scripture says, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. You know, it is so thrilling for the church to see its leaders grow and strive and take risks for the Lord. That is so healthy. That's so rich for the congregation. Uh, so be evaluating. Be, be, continue that. Um, here's another suggestion. Appoint a change agent. Uh, if you do evaluate things that need uh, help, need changes, Delegate this. Appoint someone to make changes. It doesn't need to be an elder. Uh, oftentimes, you know, in a plurality of leaders, if everyone's responsible, no one's responsible. So delegate to certain people. Hey, would you look at the, the, the Sunday school curriculum? Would you take a look at adult education? Would you be responsible for evaluating the music ministry? This kind of evaluation um, is so helpful. And again, a change agent to take the lead and bring it back to the elders. Here's what I'm suggesting we do. Develop a spirit of excellence. Um, the Bible says everything we do is to be done heartily as to the Lord. Romans 12, 7 and 8 list the, the spiritual gifts. And in that list, he mentions leadership and teaching as spiritual gifts. And he sa it says, those who have the leadership gift are to lead with zeal and wholeheartedness and diligence. So teachers are to teach, and here we're given a specific biblical injunction, lead with zeal. And leading with zeal means a commitment to the work, giving thought and time and energy. Uh, too many teachers are lazy. They do a minimal amount of work. Whatever we do should be done with excellence. So this goes for everybody in the church. We do it with excellence. Uh, Romans 12, 11 says, Not lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord. 
not lagging behind. Don't be lazy, in other words. Fervent in spirit and serving the Lord. That is such a powerful verse. Whatever you do, Paul says, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men. Don't give the Lord your leftovers. Give the Lord your first fruits. Give the Lord your best. Do it in the spirit of excellence. And last, I'd say pray. Whatever you do, pray. Pray for all these things. Without God's blessings, all of our efforts are in vain. But all of this, I want you to see, is related to the Great Commission. Uh, All of this, the education of the people of God is related to the Great Commission. This is an essential part of the Great Commission. So let's do it with excellence. Let's be faithful. Let's be excellent. Let's be obedient. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this time to consider the Great Commission, some of the characteristics of the Great Commission, and in particular, the importance of uh, teaching your people to obey. Uh, Lord, help us to do this with uh, zeal. Help us to do it with excellence. And I pray you just bless uh, the brothers and sisters as they consider how to implement uh, some of these biblical principles. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.